0: If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com, or you can visit my Substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. Going where few radio hosts dare to go, talking about all of the hot button issues that your mother said never to talk about at the family dinner table. 9-11 truth and, uh, and even things like Jewish identity, anti-Semitism and gasp the Holocaust. We're talking about that with guests from totally different perspectives. Daniel Pinchbeck in the first hour had a very, an interesting perspective that probably aligns with a lot of, sort of left-leaning, relatively open-minded American Jewish people. Now we're going to move to another perspective that probably doesn't so much, and that's the one expressed by Dr. Alan Sobrowski and his editorial assistant, Kat McGuire, in the new article, Unsettled History, the Useful Abuse of the Holocaust. It's a very good introductory article to the issue of the World War II Holocaust and the question of of questions about it really and what what does it mean why are we no longer allowed to even question it it's all settled right well maybe maybe not let's talk about it hey welcome dr alan sabroski hi alan how are you there fine kevin i'm sorry hey dr. good kevin to have you Carol. and cat how, how are I, you doing <laughs> I'm, I'm well thanks <laughs> all right and how about cat cat are you there too
1: yes i am hi kevin hey, hi, it girl. worked we got
0: you all. Okay. Well, excellent. Uh, I don't know quite where to start, except, well, I guess, you know, the re- reaction from Daniel Pinchbeck uh, in the first hour when I did bring up the fact that you guys were going to be sort of questioning the Holocaust was uh, first, you know, it, first that he thought it was pretty settled, and then secondly, well, even if it isn't, why does it matter? So maybe that's a good place to start.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, let me take the first cut at it. Um, why it matters, I guess, it's twofold. In a in a very tangible sense, the the hoax of the Holocaust has been used as a vehicle, both to um, extract monies, large amounts of monies, from Germany and is being used in an attempt to extract large amounts of money from Poland and other countries in Europe for something that never happened. And the other half of that, it's used as a shield for Israel. Every time Israel or Israeli settlers or the IDF do something particularly nasty, especially to the Palestinians, um, everyone shrieks, but you can't criticize them anti-Semitism today is any criticism of Israel or any policies because of the Holocaust, which lurks in the background. So that's one reason. And the second reason is that, as I noted at the end of the article, uh, and I'll be addressing in greater detail than what I'm working on right now, Kat, I hope you're going to be ready next weekend, not this weekend, for your editorial pen Yes, I um, will. <laughs> believe me, the article was a lot more readable after she finished working it through than it had been before I got it to her.
0: Um, yeah, I, I know, Kat. Yeah. Kat is a great proofreader. Thank you, Kat, for the work you've done for me, too, you know, helping with the translation of From Yahweh to Zion, among other things.
2: Are, are, are you going to get the same sort of a... Percentage payback that I'm going to ask from Cat for giving her compliments and therefore getting more business. I wait, would think wait a a minute. You're,
0: you're getting that. payback from Cat. She has to bribe you to work for you. No, no, no. I,
2: I, I would, I would try it, but it wouldn't work. Anyway, <laughs> so. the, the second thing is that, and, and I don't believe this is coincidental. Every single major organization, every single revolutionary group that's attacking. uh Our constitution, our culture, pushing various left-wing causes either is led by Jews or is being financed by Jews, as in the NGOs pushing migrants into the United States and Europe being funded heavily by George Soros-financed NGOs. And the Holocaust is used as a shield to prevent anyone from criticizing them, even mentioning that Jews are doing this. You know, like some black uh, musicians and journalists ran into in the last last several weeks, even noticing that Jews constitute most of the people running the music industry and most of the people running Halloween and all of the people at the top of the FTX financial pyramid are Jews, brings out shrieks of anti-Semitism, horrors of this hate speech, all the rest of that. And it all has its roots. Directly in the Holocaust as a shield for enormous
0: misdeeds. Okay. Uh, Kat, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Uh, yes. Um, I listened to the whole interview with Daniel Pinchbeck, somebody who I had. Um, Liked his reading, um, his book um, on Quetzalcoatl, um, 2012-something, Quetzalcoatl. Um, and I had also listened to his lectures at Burning Man. And so I have um, followed him. But there's been an interim that I haven't, and I was shocked. I mean, it really took my breath away to the degree of uninformedness he has. Um, just uh, so much... He did not know about 9-11. It just, it was shocking. But in terms of um, where you had said that, you know, is are things settled and why does it matter? I will, Alan dealt with um, why does it matter? And uh, thank you, Alan, you um, spoke on that very well. Um, I would like to deal with him as it is it settled. In his eyes, six million is absolutely settled. In his eyes, climate is absolutely settled. Wait a minute,
0: I got him down to 5.1 million.
1: Uh, But he said that's just quibbling. It's still is he said, quote unquote, an effing number of Jews died. Excuse me, I wish um, you'd had at your fingertips. It was less than 300,000 if he'd read Alan's um, article. And what really perturbed me was the constant um, um, calling you emotional when you th- said things that he didn't know anything about. So science was settled when he was talking about climate or the Holocaust, but it was not settled when you were talking about 9-11, when we started talking about COVID, and he kept saying, well, I don't know about these things. Of course, that's why you think it's all emotional, non-critical thinking conspiracy theories is basically what he said. And I think it's highly unfortunate. I could just, well, I, I followed him for a long time. So he's a very arrogant person, um, who believes what he believes is correct. I found that to be pretty true. And do you, but do you in think more, the, more
0: so than most sort of public intellectual types, you know, in his position, he, that seems kind of comes with the territory. <laughs>
1: That yes, that that is definitely true. And now that they have the power, they're on the side of the man, they're on the side of the establishment. They can't admit it. They just think, no, this is how it's true. Um, he will, I'm sure, not listen to this second half and even more so not go to the comments because I have some very, very um, pointed examples of showing him where his analysis, and I can say one in particular, that um, historically Jews have been forced into these intellectual jobs like banking. Um, Andrew Joyce wrote an extraordinary article that debunks that canard so utterly, so completely, that if he deserves to read it, it would maybe open his mind and that would just be the starter of things that he doesn't know anything about because for him, it's all settled. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's true. Although, although it, it's the, the settledness quickly kind of went, it went from the 6 million is absolute and sacred pretty quickly to the well, however many, uh well, whatever happened, Um you know, why does it really matter that much now? So uh, it, but, Yeah, you know, in defense of Daniel Pinchbeck, I mean, it's tough to have to talk about things that you haven't really studied. And so it's, in a way, it's kind of you know, unfair of me, I suppose, to bring him on the show and then talk about all this stuff that's really outside the bounds of his article that he doesn't really know much about. On the other hand, in his article, he said that he wanted to open up uh, an inquiry. This is the beginning of an inquiry. He wants to have a dialogue or a discussion about these unmentionable issues. So, in a sense, I guess I was trying to sort of help him with that, but... uh it, where he was right though, and I'll, I'll ask, throw this back to you, Alan. Okay. So, you know, what you just said, uh, I'm sure that would be really, you know, Daniel would, would uh, have a real hard time with that. I, I think there's, I, th- I think, you know, you're not obviously wrong. However, what Daniel was so worried about was the possibility that this anti-Semitism, which, you know, this, an- this anger at Jews uh, as a group that has appeared here and there throughout history in different places could get out of control again. And perhaps, you know, a combination of civilization going south and all sorts of bad things happening, whether it's climate change related or whatever, uh, but combination of that plus... These kinds of issues where people have the Internet and they start studying the Holocaust and suddenly they say, wow, uh, it's actually not what we thought. And they study various other things and it all coalesces into anti-Jewish scapegoating. So maybe Daniel actually has a point that we need to be concerned about the possibility of out-of-control anti-Jewish scapegoating. What do you think? Well, the only thing that that constitutes
2: scapegoat is if the object of the hatred is innocent. And in this case, the object of the hatred is not innocent, and that's an important. That, I'm serious, <laughs> okay. and that's an important difference. That, that's not I, what Renee writes. So. No, no, Kevin, I'm going to, I'm going to repeat. Just uh, this going to be part of the introduction to this next article I'm shipping off to you and Kat. uh But it's something that I, I wrote in a short piece on the many faces of anti the complicated faces of anti-Semitism uh, must have been twelve years ago. And it, it started with a or rather the genesis of, of the thought was a discussion I'd had several years earlier with a Jewish friend of mine. She was a judge Had been a student of mine back at Michigan, way, way in the back ancient days, not quite using stone tablets, but pretty close to that in computer terms. And she had mentioned something about. Uh, that. About all of the hatred that have been directed at Jews over the, over the many, many centuries. And I looked at her and I said, well, what's wrong with you? And she sort of reared back and said, what do you mean? What's wrong with us? And I said, well, look at it in personal terms. If a few people I meet don't like me, it is very easy and I hope realistic to say that the problem is theirs. If virtually everyone I meet hates me, it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion that there is either something fundamentally wrong with me or with fundamentally wrong with what I am doing. And that, you can understand, the relationship did not go well after that. But that's also true. And I think it becomes very clear in the modern world if you And I talk about from the modern world, basically from the, I'll say, mid to late 19th century on, with the simultaneous rise, and I don't think it was coincidental, of Marxism and Zionism. That virtually every revolutionary movement in the West, certainly almost every communist party I know in the West, or in Europe as well, have been led by Jews. And that includes apartheid era South Africa, a fellow named Joe Slovo was the head of the South African Communist Party and a bosom buddy of Nelson Mandela and of the other leaders of the
0: ANC. And everybody I studied African literature with thought those were the good guys.
2: Oh, that depend And of course, South Africa has prospered under the ANC, right? It has become an absolute shithole.
0: Well, I haven't been back to the department since, uh, what, 2003 or 2004, or so who knows yeah. what they're saying now.
2: Oh no, it, it yeah, well, they're probably saying the same thing as the Democrats are saying about the border that there's no problem and about the inner cities that they're all beautiful and Detroit and Baltimore and St. Louis are, are garden spots. But that's in that's in practical terms. And you you look at the groups today whether you're talking the ones pushing the LGBT, fit, critical race theory, migration into Europe and and into America, the whole woke ancestry bit, you go through that, and there are Jews at the head of almost every one of them, and behind the BLM as well. And so if you start looking at that, and you can say, well, why would people hate us? Well, I can think of several good reasons for that.
0: <laughs> so, Alan, how did you get to this position? Like, uh, you know, Daniel made it clear that, you know, he's grown up ethnically Jewish, And, you know, not religiously and not really part of the Jewish community, but he still just sort of imbibed this, uh, notion that Jews are, have been unjustly persecuted, uh, throughout history. And you're also ethnically Jewish. And yet at some point you obviously didn't have that same formation. So. Well, certainly I didn't
2: have that form. I'm half Jewish on my father's side. I didn't know it until, uh, I guess it was sometime in the, in the nineties. Um, and he had to mention that in an offhand basis, and it meant as much to him as as much to me, so we gave it all the discussion time it deserved, which is probably 10 seconds.
0: So you care even less about your Jewish heritage than I care about my Irish, German, Welsh, and Scottish heritage. And I,
2: exactly. It was, it's, in fact, I, I wrote a piece in, in Mondo Weiss, uh, I guess it was in 2009, um, at Phil Weiss's Invitation, I basically said, you know, it just doesn't matter to me. I'm an American, period, and that's it. Just the rest of these things just don't have any 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 fundamental bearing. Um, but I will say that the Holocaust, or rather the the use of the Holocaust as an excuse and a defense. For anything and everything that Jews generally and Israel and its partisans, in particular, do to the Palestinians and anyone else around them, um, these people are riding a tiger. I mean, they have they have no choice but to go for broke, and what they're going to break is the United States specifically, but I think Western culture generally. And if they don't, they're dead. Okay. I mean that that's, literally. I mean that literally.
0: That's, uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty hard, hardcore words. And, uh, I wonder if we had Daniel still on this hour, how he would, uh, respond. But, um in, in terms of the, the article on the Holocaust, okay. So, so that, that's why it matters. Uh, how, how well, do, how do if we, if I may say, uh, yeah, just to ahead, finish
1: That up is, um, because he had talked, Daniel had talked about scapegoats. And if we were to have it on, Um, I think he would say that Jews are going to be made as scapegoats. And I have been screaming from the rooftops that I think so, too, that we don't want Jewish people to be made as scapegoats for the bad behavior of a small number of Jews. But what I find difficult, and he was a, a blazing example, is that if you want to do tikkun olam and help change the world for the better, you have to prove yourself to be a good, wise leader to do that. And um, my concern is, I think, it is either, well, what is good for the Jews will basically lead that. Um, I don't think Pinchback is one of the people who would do that, but my biggest concern is, You have to be educated and informed. Kevin, you weren't wrong to call him on. The stuff that you talked about is everybody knows about these issues. We talk about climate. We talk about 9-11. These weren't like, well, this is the problem. In his eyes, these are weird uh, conspiracy theories. If I'm going to follow Jewish people down a Tikkun alum path so that they are not scapegoats, They are going to have to educate themselves and bring themselves up to speed with the entire picture as opposed to cherry picking what science is settled, what science isn't and what is right and what is wrong. And it seems like he's created his own little bubble and you're not in it. And therefore, um, we're going in the wrong direction, whereas in reality, I was right where he was. And actually, as we've said about the left um they've gone off on, on such a narrow rabbit hole woke path. So um I, I was just really concerned about the scapegoat issue and it's like, um doctor heal thyself. Start, yeah. start educating yourself and, and that the scapegoatism will not happen.
2: You know, that's, good I point. think that's, that's a good point, Kat, but one of the, one of the variations, this wasn't about also, but this was agreeing with you, but just an elaboration on that. Um. I would, I would guess that it's also a relatively small percentage of of Jews who are actually taking the lead and pushing these various causes and movements. Um, you know, even historically, you know, the leaders of the German communist parties at the end of World War One, which did their, their revolution and this caused the classic stab in the back, uh, Thesis in Germany uh, were Jewish, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, but almost all of their followers weren't. And most German Jews at that time were not supporting them. There were German Jews in the in the Imperial Army, for God's sake. And most Jews today aren't active in that way. But the Jewish critique of Germans in the Holocaust. Is very much the same. That only the, the, the German leaders were pushing this, which is was the basis for the uh, that appalling Nuremberg tribunals. But the rest of the German people and Germany as a whole were guilty because silence was complicity. That's what. The, that's the basis for reparations for the Holocaust. True or not that the Jewish groups have used on Germany. And if that's true, and if that's what they're doing, I mean, it is true because that is what they're doing. But if that thesis is true, that silence is complicity, then the Jewish community, the large majority of Jews, not all, but the large majority, are also guilty of complicity because they are silent and refuse to criticize what those leaders are doing. People like Ran and Gilad Etzman are few and far between
0: well, well, that, and that, that that's the
2: that's the, pro, that's the problem with looking you're only a scapegoat as you if you're innocent that's my point and because if, if you're innocent and and you're a, a criticized or attacked for something, yes, then you are being made a scapegoat. But if your silence is complicity which is the Jewish thesis on the Germans then Jewish silence is complicity in the treason of that handful of people, treason and sedition of that handful of Jew, leading Jews who are pushing these causes.
0: Well, let me, let me push back against you a little bit here, Ellen, because it's not self-evident to me that everybody who's pushing left-wing causes, uh, communism, and even, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, although, yeah, by the time they got institutionalized, there's, a, there's some problems there. But it's not ob- obvious to me that people pushing those causes are guilty of anything in many cases other than trying to make the world better. I just had Ramin Mazahari on the show. He is a socialist supporter of the Islamic revolution of Iran. Uh, and other socialist causes as well and it turns out he was a good friend of my old friend Andre Volchek another firebrand marxist and the at the heart of a lot of that left wing ideology is a concern for human suffering and no, noticing that the great majority of people are suffering unnecessarily because of the rather brutal, selfish and mendacious exploitation of small ruling elites. And then they work for either reform or revolution to make that situation better. And so simply having a left wing or communist ideology, uh, I don't believe makes one guilty of anything at all. What do you think, Ellen? Well, that, I mean, that is a thesis, but I don't think if you
2: look at what happened in those countries that did go communist or did have communist communist governments, um, they collapsed immediately once the, the, the Soviet military power, Russian military power collapsed. And I think in a practical way, that should show that whatever the ideals of communism, communism in practice is really not very nice and doesn't work very well. That state, which is supposed to wither away at the upper echelon of communism, somehow never manages to wither away. Now, there are two exceptions, but they're no longer communist. And the two exceptions are Vietnam and China. Um, They're both national socialist states, effectively that. They have socialism, measures of free enterprise, Strong nationalism, strong ethnocentrism. I don't think that either Ho or Mao would recognize them today if they looked at them. And I'm not talking about recognize them economically, would recognize them socially or politically. I don't mind people having ideals, but when you when you hang on to a horse that has failed every single time it's gotten into into the race, you know, you ought to take a second look at your ideology.
0: Well, well Alan, let, let's let's clarify things here. Uh, socialism. Let's let Kat, yeah. Kat respond to that, please. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Kat.
2: Because we're, we're both different. We're very different. She's, she's a successful socialist in that she moved away from
0: it. Yeah. You're, you're an ex-leftist, Kat, so tell us your perspective.
1: <laughs> yeah, as a leftist, um, I, I had the um, ideals as well, is that we're going to make things better and tap into oppression to help people um Um, understand where they are oppressed. And so the problem is, is that this whole woke um, path that the left has gone down has allowed them to be closed to actually growing. And instead you have the woke police who are um, saying what can be um, considered revolutionary or evolutionary for this utopia we're trying to arrive at. Since when is... Um, our, our drag queens um, grooming children that's part of this evolution we're going to and that's in the basket of, um, of um, their values their values have gone haywire and yet they keep saying we're about um, um, love and utopia and actually they're the haters but they're making everybody else seem hateful because we don't go along with their totalitarian world view
0: well, that, yeah, I think, I think you're right about the identity politics going out of control on the left. Absolutely. But, uh, let's define our terms here. Uh, socialism would usually be defined as the state uh, controlling the means of production or owning the means of production, directing it. And so it's not an either or thing so much as a percentage case, right? So you a, a totally 100% non-socialist state, call it pure capitalism or pure free market or whatever, would have absolutely zero state control or direction of any means of production. And a 100% socialist state would have a 100% government control of means of production. And if we look around the world, what we see is that almost all modern societies are somewhat Somewhere in between. And that places like uh, Sweden and New Zealand, especially at their socialist heyday, had a lot of government controlled means of production, um, pretty close to probably what you had in some of the so-called communist countries. When Andre Volchek roamed the world uh, reporting from these various places like Zimbabwe. He said Zimbabwe, a uh, socialist country that gets terrible press in the West was actually really cool. The, the capital city, Harare, was beautiful, well kept. Uh, it, it, po- poverty wasn't nearly what they said. It was, it was actually way better than ever we ever hear. Same with North Korea, he said. Uh, China is so far beyond us in terms of people being able to, you know, clean, uh, nice buildings, uh, high speed rail everywhere. You know, it, it makes the U.S. look like a third world country. And yet, in China, the state owns and controls the entire banking system and controls the economy. It has the commanding heights of the economy. So, China, we might say, is seventy-five, eighty percent socialist today. The U.S. is maybe forty uh, percent socialist, and the government uh, meddling in the economy is all about propping up the bourgeoisie—that is, the property owners, the oligarchy, the rich guys. Right? So. Wouldn't you say, Alan, that maybe we need a socialist revolution here in the United States not to turn everything over to drag queens and kindergartens and stuff like that, but rather to become a little more like China in at least in having uh, a social policy directing the way money is created? Uh, it should be created by the treasury, the U.S. treasury, it should be government, run right? It should be socialist and it should be building infrastructure. We shouldn't be funny money invented out of nothing by private banksters. So given that actually socialism, we probably need a lot more socialism, not less, don't we?
2: I would say not, not the way we're going and not considering the people who would be managing it. But I think that the just really interestingly looking at them, like I said, China and Vietnam seem to have worked out a, a really interesting compromise. Um you know by having essentially economic zones within the country, which so the whole it's not a function of a of a percentage across the entire country. there are economic zones that are basically free enterprise zones within the country and a different situation in the in the bulk of the of the land between them of the countryside between these zones but the uh, you might want to take another look at Zimbabwe, by the way. The Organization of African Union, uh last annual report that I read, and that was in 2021, on Zimbabwe put it. it I They didn't quite use the term shithole country, but it was very close to that. Um, but I suppose a, a visitor would be getting a, a slightly different view of it than the people living in the countryside. I think, no, no really, Kevin, the... I don't think that the United States really has a choice in these matters anymore. Um, we're no longer talking about socialism or or capitalism or free market systems or anything else. Uh, this is getting a long way away from the Holocaust bit. Well, yeah, okay. Well, uh, well, well let's just but, say- but, but I but but, but yeah. very but I I think we're we're looking at something that's going to be extremely grim within the next two years. And it, I don't I have no confidence at all in, in the outcome of that. But that has nothing to do with the Holocaust. One of the things on the Holocaust, I think that people uh, like the the gentleman who was on the show before and some others in that vein need to consider is that, you know, it is the old the old economist bit. You know, when the numbers talk, everything else walks. And the core of anything looking at, at whatever one calls the Holocaust are demographics. And I think the demographics are absolutely controlling. Uh, World Almanac and other sources have almost identical numbers for 1930s population and post-World War II, late 1940s population. Jewish population figures for almost everyone before the mid-1950s, and I don't know what happened to change that, were provided by the American Jewish Committee. It was the one that gave the World Almanac its data in 1933, 1938, and in 1948. This wasn't something that it pulled out of thin air. It wasn't something that it... Send its own researchers scattering around the world and asking how many people had survived or were still alive or what they were doing. And the net effect of it is that there was a very slight increase in Jewish population from 19th in the world from 1933 to 1948. Far less, far less, as I pointed out in my article, that would one would expect from a you know a normal population growth over those years, but far less than if you took six million out of it, and they're not even close to that. I mean, those are the numbers that you start with, and then you know once you look at once you have a look and the numbers before World War Two and after World War Two, you look at those numbers, and then you can make extrapolations for what could have happened to affect that change, whether they were increases or decreases. If the American Jewish Committee in 1948, and let me take a step back. In 1933, the American Jewish Committee gave the World Almanac a number of over 15 million, just over 15 million Jews in the world. In 1948, it gave... The world almanac numbers of just under 16 million. Now, if it had given world almanac figures of 10 million or 12 million or 13 million, you would have looked at that and said, well, you had over 15 million before, you know, we got three, four, five million fewer people in this demographic. Something catastrophic happened. It might have been extermination. It might have been disease whatever it might have been then you start then you can start talking legitimately legitimately about what and who and how and why but when you get a slight increase in numbers you cannot reasonably under any circumstances come up with anything approaching the type of catastrophe that a 6 million or 5 million or 4 million or 3 million or 2 million would have meant maybe a million you could get to if you really pushed it, but that would be stretching it. And I, as I said to to someone I was talking to, uh, talking the same way that, that we talk on a, on a, on a, on a a chat. um, One of the things that we need to, to recognize is that, None of the people who talk about the Holocaust and who support the Holocaust as it is in the official narrative walked all the camps, personally walked all the camps or none of their organizations walked all the camps. Churchill didn't walk all of the camps. Eisenhower walked one camp. I don't know about De Gaulle. The ICRC walked all of the camps, all of the camps after World War II, with no one impeding them and no one to exact retribution from them for anything that they said or did. The German regime was dead. Germany was dead, effectively, partitioned, occupied, ruined. They said just under 300,000. And that dovetails with what the American Jewish Committee provided to World Almanac, plus some additional dead that I would have expected in the process of that war from the war itself, from air attacks, from bombing raids, from disease, from whatever else it was. That fits. Nothing else does. And with those numbers as the point of departure, the Holocaust narrative fails. Not a matter of ideology, not a matter of politics. Not our pattern personality. It's simply a matter of the numbers.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because when I brought up Gideon Poglia, who uses that same methodology to get up, come up with numbers like, uh, 27 million Muslims, uh, killed or yeah, basically killed. Uh, and then another 5 million who would have been born if their parents hadn't been killed due to the 9 11 wars. He does that. Purely through looking at the demographics, looking at how many people should have been, you know, were in the country before the war, and then how many people should have been in the country uh, uh, later if you'd had a normal situation. And of course, sure, Daniel- that's 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 certainly a good a good measure to start with.
2: The only thing that you have to look at that would modify that is that if there is a volunteer with you know within a given country, you know, not talking about a region, but within a given country. Uh, One thing about about a war is that there is, in most cases, a relatively great degree of restriction on movement for any of the peoples from a country A to country B, no matter what that country is. um, There's a greater flexibility of movement in many places today. And so what I would ask is, are we talking about people who died or is that died plus left, you know, refugees, migrants? No, just died. It would be, it would be some combination of that. And so I'd have to look at the countries around uh, around the country, given one that I was looking at. If I was looking at, for example, Afghanistan, I'd want to look at where else Afghans are. Uh There's a large Afghan population in Austria, which is... Uh, proving itself adept at sexual assault, rape and drugs, which is not one of the great scams of it. But I would look at, at where else Afghans were. And if, uh, Pakistan or Iran or other countries adjacent to Afghanistan reported certain numbers of, of, ad, numbers of Afghans and there were other Afghans who were migrants into European countries, you know, I'd use that in addition to the demographics to determine what the actual death would be. But you know, you you have to you have to agree. I think you don't, well, you don't have to agree with me on anything. But I think you would agree with me that uh, one of the one of the consequences, and I don't think it was unintentional or incidental, of of American policy in the war, the so-called war on terror for the last 20 years has been to inflict millions of dead, wounded, and refugees on Muslim countries that ha- just happen to be in Israel's way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. And, and by the way, Gijin right. Pahlia does actually yeah. analyze the number of refugees as well as the number of killed, and he has, I forget, ten, how many tens of millions of refugees as well. Uh, well, mm-hmm. Kat, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Um, yes. Yes. Um, I I think Alan um, had a very good point when he was saying how the um, Red Cross actually walked all the camps, and that's how the numbers were collected. They were right there. So that's very powerful um, statistical evidence that um, needs to be put forth. But this subject is so highly censored because it has um, such important significance. Um, As Alan said, there's... So much, um, extortion money being, um, riding on the Holocaust, um, and not just the reparations. So in that sense, but also, um, part of the importance of the Holocaust is that it, um, they need the Nazi meme to be kept alive because if, if the Nazi meme is not alive, there is no Holocaust. They have to have the evil Nazis. And so another importance of the Holocaust in keeping that Nazi meme alive is a direct lineage from World War II German Nazis to what they are making today in a twofold way. One is um, calling um, um, white people, um, neo-Nazis, um, white supremacists, uh, do- deplorables, and um, domestic terrorists, and um, Trump was Hitler. So the direct lineage between the Holocaust and the Nazis is coming right now to um, a third of the nation being uh, targeted as Nazis. They don't necessarily say it now. They just say white supremacists, but that's the lineage. And the other place that that lineage takes hold is in the whole COVID analysis, the constant reference that this is Nazi science and that... um the, the Nazis were eugenicists and the, show me today the Nazis. Where's the Nazis? I don't see a Nazi. Um, Klaus Schwab is a cartoon Nazi. There are no Nazis. So then they would say, well, it's the Nazi formula and method. Um, no, I think we're looking at more totalitarianism, which is Bolshevikism, which is Jewish. So we can't talk about that. So the Holocaust is very important because it keeps the Nazi meme alive for contemporary reasons. Oh, but Kat, yeah. Yeah.
2: Kat, you're, you're, th- there are Nazis today.
0: In
1: there are
2: some of them, not in the United States. I think both of them held a meeting, party meeting at the in a telephone booth in uh, <laughs> Bella's Kitchen a <laughs> short <laughs> time ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but but the, the only Nazis I see out there, I mean, aside from the fact that it's a slang and that the, the national socialists in Germany never call themselves Nazis, uh, it's, a, it's sort of like a country bumpkin. I understand. Several of my German and Austrian friends have told me that. Um, but the, the Nazis are around the, the Azov Brigade in Ukraine fighting for the Ukrainians.
0: But they're good Nazis because they hate Russians they're good, Jews. they're good.
2: They're good Nazis, and, in fact, Israel has said that. They're good Nazis because they don't do anything nasty to Jews. Of course,
0: they, that's... The yeah, Nazis. they just hate Russians.
1: Well, yeah, Ukraine, yeah. Ukraine is just Israel 2.0, Kazaria 2.0. They're trying to turn the pale of settlement into palestine.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Don't give them any ideas, Pat. Oh, <laughs> attacked. <Kat. it's> <laughs> you know, oh, I,
2: I have been attacked, I've been attacked by dozens of people because... I, I, am, I am genetically handicapped by punsterism. It's uh, the fourth generation of my family, the men all in their 50s start telling terrible puns. And, okay. and it's inevitable. And I think you just beat me. You just beat me on it. I I defer to you. You are the queen of puns.
0: Well, if the, pun, if the puns, I've been hanging are
1: around you em- too long, Alan.
0: That's the problem. <laughs> of, you're the empress of puns. All right. Well, you know, getting 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 back to serious subjects here. So, Alan, the first first uh, big red flag showing that the official Holocaust narrative is dubious uh, is demographics. Uh, what are some others? Uh, motive. Uh,
2: I don't know. There was discussion in Germany about making Europe, not just Germany, but Europe, Judenfrei or Judenrein, what they call it, clear, clear and clean of Jews. And they had been discussing a number of alternative homelands for Jews. Now, whether they would have moved them into the steppes of Russia or Madagascar, which was actually under consideration, I think that if Germany had won World War II, they would have they would have made Europe as close to being cleaned and clear of Jews as they could have done. That was after the war, but Germany was in in a war, I mean, literally for its existence, and the idea that they would spend spend four four or five years keeping millions of people behind barbed or cageage supposedly exterminating several million of them, you know the resources involved in this would be would have been enormous and you didn't have to do it the uh, the guy who actually saved Hitler's butt uh, a major Otto Remmer who was promoted to major general an ss major general um. Essentially stopped the coup against Hitler in July 20th, 1944 by refusing to give people, the German generals who were, who were backing this access to some of the, some of the things in Berlin. And he was asked after the war and he said, of course it's nonsense. He said, if Hitler had wanted to get rid of the Jews, we would have done it in months. You know, like Stalin people conducted the Holodomor in Ukraine. Simplest way to do it, shove them out into the fields in the winter, keep them penned in, let cold and, ex- and exposure and disease kill them off, shoot the few that are left, be done with it, move on. They didn't. They were their labor force. So the fact that the Germans, the Germans had no way of, of devoting resources like this to something like that, even if they had wanted it. Third, you get up, where are the remains? 6 million dead leave a lot of bones i did not know until the late 90s when my my father died overseas in uh, in helsinki and his remains were cremated under modern modern techniques and i got this big urn with several pounds of bone granules and bone fragments in it and that was with modern techniques with a single individual these are not biodegradable. Skin is. Bone granules are not. There ought to be ought to be a lot, many, many, many thousands of tons of bone granules around. There's nothing. No one has found anything. They just people apparently thought, and in fact, there's a movie called Fatherland, which takes this that the, cremating the Jews, they just disappeared into smoke and ashes and went off on the wind, and were gone. It's not true. The bodies don't do that. And the idea that this ominous sounding Zyklon B was used. Zyklon B is a Delausian agent. It's DDT. Germany and the US and Russia and France and at least 30 other countries in the world had an enormous amount of lethal poison gases, which they had used on each other in the First World War. They had stocks of these. Do you want to, do you want to use gas? Why use a delousing agent? You can smother someone with DDT. I mean, you can kill them with it. Believe me, you can kill them with it. Uh, but you can't do it easily. You can't do it efficiently and you can't do it well. Why would you use something like that? Why would you even say you use it? Well, because no one, no one wants to question it. And that's, that's the big defense of the people who pushed the Holocaust. <laughs> I read about 10 years ago an article about, from the Manchester Guardian, about a Jewish guy from Germany, uh, who was living in Northern England, a violinist, apparently a very good violinist. And he, he had died of, in his nineties or something. And he, he dined out for decades on tales of surviving As a teenage boy, eight Nazi death camps, eight of them, count them. So basically, you have to think that the Holocaust was a misunderstood German travel agency, which looked on moving young, aspiring Jewish musicians around camps to entertain people, because that's what he dined out on.
0: Well, there are a lot of these dubious anecdotes for sure, uh, Alan, that's true. Do you think that the Zyklon B story started because they were sort of dowsing the camp inmates? Like the, everybody admits these there were these big transit camps and work camps. And when people got to the camps, especially after the summer of 42, when there was a, a typhoid epidemic, they started dowsing people in, in this uh, DDT when they got to the camp, and that that led to rumors uh, and the rumors might have expanded and then been amplified by, uh, British propaganda. And the next thing you know, these are, uh, shower stalls with, uh, Cyclone yeah. B killing people. I,
2: I, don't, I don't think it was so much of a function of misunderstood. Uh, DDT was commonly used in World War II, widely used in World War II and, and also in Korea, you know, to, for people who had been fighting in, in the, in the field, uh, especially in Asia, in the jungles in Asia, but also in Europe. You know, it's a good way of doing it. And believe me, uh, we didn't use DDT in Vietnam. At least I think we had a different agent, but I'm not sure. I'm not really positive in the 60s. Uh, but believe me, uh, when you're out in the jungle, you get lice. You also get leeches. <laughs> you know, I got to get something to get them off. And well, so I- sure I- that would be done.
1: I'd like to add um, something from a book I read called, um, that have a s- stupid title, The Gas Chambers of Sherlock Holmes, but actually was a very, <laughs> it was a scholarly book, and and, it, and there's something important that I don't think many people know, because I haven't read it anywhere else except in that book. The book was full of extreme detail of how gas chambers are built. You saw bills of lading for how many nails they needed, how much wood, whatever. Um, but one chapter dealt with the um, kind of the psychology of the Eastern European Jews. Um, and it speaks very much to why the German Jews were always were German Jews. They weren't these, um, if the Eastern European Jews who had been in the pale of settlement for uh, several centuries um, so this is going to sound really, um, maybe, um, it would, to some people's ears, anti-Semitic, but according to this author, th- the people were, um, not the most hygienic. They were peasants. They were not very well studied. They were ignorant and they had a lot of superstitions. They lived in the, um, the, 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 the chattels, and they were peasants and there were many rumors. Um, not even so much about the um, the cyclone b they were terrified of these um, industrial showers and they had to shower because they had to keep the lice down these people were terrified of going into these showers, not because they thought they were going to be gassed, but just because what, what are they? We're going to die from something. They had never seen anything so hygienic. And that's how rumors, according to this very well documented book started. So it, there's, there's much more to it, but it was very interesting understanding the psychology of Eastern European peasants suddenly thrown into showers that they'd never seen before. And lots of rumors started.
2: That's interesting. I'd- I hadn't thought of that. You're right. You're right. There was a big difference between the once you started getting into the areas to the to the east of Warsaw, sort of drawing a line down the central part of that. When you got further off into into the Pale of Settlement, yeah, there's a great difference between that and particularly German, Austrian, Swiss Jews. Yeah,
0: Right, we're, the we're by the urban and prosperous.
2: Yeah more, yeah, more urbanized, more prosperous, more assimilated. You know, in uh, in World War One, there were Jews who were generals in the German army, in the Imperial Army. You know, in a in a society where the military, the Junkers, were were high class, uh, and the same in Austria, by the way. In the Austrian Empire, Austro Hungarian Empire, you know, being a general officer isn't exactly a sign that you're being kept out of society. And in fact, I've re- I read, and I don't know if it's true, Kevin, you may know about this, that uh, you know Adolf Hitler was a remarkably brave soldier in World War One. He received the Iron Cross First Class, which was unusual because that was almost always reserved for officers. That the uh, that the enlisted people would get the Iron Cross Second Class. And his company commander, again, an officer in the Imperial Army, his company commander who recommended him for the Iron Cross first class
1: was Jewish.
0: That's interesting. I I didn't know know that part.
1: I didn't know that either, but I do know that um, there's a very scholarly work. I'm looking at it right now, Um, a book called Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. 150,000 of Hitler's soldiers were Jewish and Hitler's cook and doctor were Jewish.
0: Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Well, the that. world is uh, is definitely more complicated than the simplistic uh, good versus evil myths that they feed us uh, would indicate. Well, We only have about a minute or 30 seconds or something left, so if you have anything left to say, you better spit it out. Yep. I'll give it to Kat.
1: Um, I think we have to learn and understand our history because it is very much affecting us now, and I fully believe that um, – Jews are disproportionately in control of all of the terrible things that are happening in um, finance, um, big pharma, in in big tech. They're all dominated disproportionately by Jewish people, if you know where and how to look.
0: Okay, well, that's a pretty big blanket statement, uh, but there may very well be some truth to it. and. More investigation is always necessary on all of these items, and we should be allowed to investigate and talk about it without being banned, uh, silenced, and even imprisoned like the Schafers were. So I appreciate you guys uh, being brave enough to take this on. Thank you so much, Ellen Sobrowski and Kat McGuire. Keep up the great work.
2: Thank you very much, and I'd like to add my endorsement of what Kat just said. She's correct, perfectly correct.
0: Okay, we've got a, a quorum then. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Keep up the great work, and, and uh, thanks, look, Kevin. W- I'll have Kat back on False Flag Weekly News before too long, and uh, maybe we can get Alan back on there, too, inshallah. Inshallah. Okay. Uh, thanks, is- Kevin. All right, you too, Alan. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. All right, this is Truthyhead Head Radio signing off once again. com is the website. I'm Kevin kevinbarrett.substack.com. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>